Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. My guest today is Denise Lewis. She's Director of Programs and Resident Raptor Expert at Fontenelle Forest in Bellevue, Nebraska. Today, Denise gives me a tour of the Raptor Woodland Refuge, which is an incredible public facility at the forest. Just envision this, a densely wooded hillside with an elevated boardwalk, but every 10 or 20 meters, there's a structure, almost like a cabin, each of which housing incredible owls, hawks, vultures, and eagles. Denise and I discuss each of the species at the refuge, including Swainson's hawk, ferruginous hawk, bald eagles, turkey vultures, jur falcon, peregrine falcon, eastern screech owl, and more. You'll learn a bit about the natural history of each of those species and get some behind-the-scenes insights into how they're cared for. All of these incredible raptors have unfortunately been deemed unreleasable due to injuries they sustained. But the wonderful people at Fontenelle Forest have given these birds a second chance through this wonderful educational space. This is the second episode I've recorded in the field at Fontenelle Forest. So as we walk through the raptor refuge, you'll hear some wonderful vocalizations of these birds. You may also hear some vocalizations of some of the visitors, especially early in the episode. Hopefully that's not too distracting, but it comes with the territory. I hope you enjoy this tour as much as I did. I'm posting some photos and videos in the show notes at podcast.naturesarchive.com, as well as in my stories on my Instagram, at naturesarchive, so please check them out. And be sure to follow Fontenelle Forest on Twitter. That's Fontenelle, the number four, E-S-T, like Fontenelle Forest. They're also on Instagram and Facebook as Fontenelle Forest, one word. And if you missed it, check out episode 53, where Michelle Foss and I walked the forest and discussed the habitats, management, and stewardship practices, and some of the species and ecologies on this western extent of the eastern deciduous habitat. Many people are surprised that eastern deciduous forests extend all the way into Nebraska. But back to the raptors, and without further delay, Denise Lewis and the incredible educational raptors of the Raptor Woodland Refuge. This is a nice view of this area called the Raptor Woodland Refuge. We put this in probably about seven years ago now. It's a $2.5 million exhibit. I would ask anyone in the country to go to other nature centers and find a nicer one than this. So we are very proud of this. I was amazed to see it when we came back for a visit a few years ago. Nothing like this was here the uh-uh. last time I had visited. Uh-uh. And this is very accessible, it looks like. I'm seeing you have a boardwalk and smooth, flat yeah, absolutely. concrete to get into the space. Absolutely. Every inch of the refuge is ADA accessible. And of course, these birds are not owned by Fontenelle Forest. They are owned by U.S. Fish and Wildlife. So all the birds that we have in here are permitted through U.S. Fish and Wildlife. All the birds on display, and in fact, any bird that we have on the premises is non-releasable for Mm -hmm. one reason or the other. A lot of times it's injury caused by man, but then some of these birds were hatched in captivity. Okay. And so they don't have the street smarts, I guess you might say, to go out and be a wild bird. So maybe step back for a moment and tell me about how this came to be and what is the mission of the Raptor Refuge? The Raptor Refuge's mission is to promote conservation of these spectacular raptors or birds of prey, not only through walking through here and looking and reading about the static display birds or through our traveling programs. We travel throughout the state of Nebraska into western Iowa and do type on-the-go raptor programs. So we reach a wide variety of audiences from toddlers on up to senior citizens. We're open all but, I think, just three days a year. So this was always a pipe dream. The land was here, but the process didn't start until probably, oh gosh, maybe 10, 11 years ago. I've been with the forest for going on 11 years, and I've worked with raptors for going on 23 years. These enclosures, I'm sure you're going to talk about them They look like they would be very comfortable cabins for a a person. They're that big. And they almost do. And especially when they were first put in, I thought, holy cow, I could almost move in. (laughs) So it might get a little loud now. 
Which is good. This is what it's all about, is yeah. to teach this next generation about how cool raptors are. But yeah, each of the enclosures in here is is a little bit different, different shape, different size. U.S. Fish and Wildlife is really picky on the size of enclosures you have for each species. All the enclosures that we have are built bigger, even the Eagle Complex. That enclosure is big enough for two fully flighted eagles, and neither of those eagles can fly. Two in there right now. I there's, saw the one. Yeah. there's two in there right now, and they are just best buddies. It's <laughs> really kind of fun to see. And they're a long-lived species. Hopefully, they'll be best friends for many years. So, barred owl. Uh, we have TJ and Tavi, and the only way really to tell them apart is one of them has a little band, a plastic band okay. around his legs. And when you look at them right here, they just look like perfect twins. And I'm sorry, I can't tell them apart. But a lot, I think both of these guys suffer from vehicle collision. You know, especially with owls, it's really hard to repair the wings well enough so they maintain that silent flight Mm -hmm. because they're not fast like a falcon. They need that stealth about them. So unfortunately, these guys went through a rehabilitation process and were deemed non-releasable. This is more of an eastern species. We're on the extreme edge of their their territories. Now, these are the guys that really love water. So they love to eat toads, frogs, salamanders, fish. But they're kind of an all-purpose eater. But they're cavity nesters. They need old growth. They need old growth. And unfortunately, a lot of people on their property, they don't like the looks of those old snags. Mm. They're dangerous, so they cut them down. And it really affects... Bard owls and some of the other raptors. So the one on the left is vocalizing by snapping its uh-huh. bill together. Do you know what that signifies? Yeah, that's like a warning. What are you doing? Why are you this close to me? Okay. Uh, owls do that with their beak. Hawks and falcons and any other species does not do that. And these guys, yeah, have the big dark eyes. They're they're very vocal even during the day. And these are the who cooks for you, who cooks yep. for you all, <laughs> owl. And I've had quite a few sportsmen come up to me and tell me stories. They've been in a hunting blind or they've been out at night and heard a caterwauling owl and it scared them. Boy, it really scared them. I said, yeah, that's probably, that's going to be a barred owl. Yeah, these are big owls, too. Well, but they look bigger than they actually are. I mean, how big How do you think they weigh? Those feathers probably double the, Absolutely. <laughs> the size. So. Absolutely. Let's see. I'm trying to remember my... It's They're probably like 1.2 to yeah, 1.5. Yeah, about that. Yeah, about that. But people, a lot of the public think, oh, that bird must weigh 5 pounds, 10 pounds. Yeah. And they're kind of like the wet poodle story. When you get them wet, there's really not too much to them. But, yeah, so these these are a very unique species. Once again, when you get out into western Nebraska, you don't see them. So, or yeah. lucky enough. And I think you have... I think you have a Swainson's hawk here. We have. Uh, and we've... that's the opposite. And this is like the far eastern edge of its range. Correct. Correct. And Swainson's hawks, in fact, we have two educational Swainson's hawks, and then we have one on display. And a lot of old-timers will call them grasshopper hawks oh. because that is their favorite food of all. Now, they will not feed their hatchlings grasshoppers because there's too much of that hard outer shell. So they feed the babes mice. But a lot of raptors eat insects also as part of their protein diet. And I don't know if a lot of people really realize that. Yeah, I think I first really learned about that with burrowing owls and swainson's uh-huh. hawks. Uh-huh. Like those were the two. And I... We have some Swainson's hawks back in the county that that I live, Santa Clara County, and there used to be many more, and they experienced a steep decline, and I think it was tracked down to pesticide use in South America, the other end of their you bet. migratory route. You bet. Is it the same for the Plains, Swainson's hawks? Yes, even though the United States has outlawed DDT for, what, since 72, something like that, there are other countries in the world that still allow DDT. And a lot of these species are migratory species. They're just not North American. So they maybe want to feed on some grasshoppers that are poisoned, and they don't make that return journey mm-hmm. because they get poisoned. But yeah, I read somewhere a long time ago that a healthy Swainson's hawk might eat up to 50 grasshoppers per day. 
And you look at that number and, and multiply that by the kettles of Swainson's that you see, that's quite a service they provide. Well, yeah, it's not uncommon to see hordes of grasshoppers crossing a road or in a field uh-huh. or whatever. And then you realize, yeah, there's so many grasshoppers. And then now it makes sense. Why? How could there be that many? And why are there so many now? You don't have the same right. predatory pressure right. on them. Okay, there were just a couple things I wanted to follow up on. So Denise, of course, is correct. DDT was outlawed in the United States in 1972. And in 2004, the Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants partially banned its use in another 170 participating countries. However, exemptions were made for vector control in areas that still had significant malaria concerns. So it is still used. And this, of course, is a controversial situation because it pits human health against the broader ecosystem health. And it's actually even more complicated than that. The Malaria Foundation International has concerns about DDT use because over time, mosquitoes become resistant. So even those fighting malaria have some questions. And of course, there are some countries that did not participate in this accord at all. And as a result, as of 2013, there's still close to 4,000 tons or 8 million pounds or 3.6 million kilograms of DDT that are being produced annually. That's a lot of DDT still going into the environment. And I just feel obligated to acknowledge that a lot of insects like grasshoppers do have boom and bust cycles independent of predation. So my comment about Swainson's hawks and tons of grasshoppers, that was not meant to be an absolute. That's uh, just sort of a loose correlation. But yeah, there's a lot of species, maybe people don't realize, that are insect eaters, but also expert mousers. Uh-huh. So Also helpful. <laughs> very helpful. Holy cow, very helpful. The best mouser that we probably have in our stable of raptors, we have Baron, who is a, a barn owl. They like to call those type of owls flying stomachs because of the fact that if they can find it, they're going to eat it. And they eat four to five mice per night per one owl, mm. and they tend to have big broods, so all the babes are going to eat maybe one to two to three. When you do the math, I mean, it's it's almost preferable, I think, to most people to have a barn owl on property than maybe a house cat. And in fact, I know in California, a lot of vineyards are putting up barn owl boxes to keep the mice out of the field, so that's a cool thing. Do they stray beyond mice? As part of their... No. They're, I assume they like a rat really, might be on the table, though. Maybe, yeah, maybe a smaller rat, but, but boy, those guys are, once again, just expert mousers. Uh-huh. Just love them, and they're beautiful birds. Hey, nature enthusiasts. Do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up, too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com slash donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. Yeah, we're lucky to have a community garden in our neighborhood, and they put up a barn owl box, and it's they've produced a brood every year for, oh, good. Yeah, for quite a while. Good. Yeah, and they're not the prettiest babes, and of course, their sound is is like a screaming banshee or a ghost. So one of their nicknames is the ghost owl. But then you talk about rodentsides and the fact that people still want to poison the rats and mice on their property. And I'm not sure a lot of them realize the depth of the secondary poisoning that it causes, not only dogs and cats, but fox and coyotes and, of course, raptors. And you still see it throughout Nebraska, throughout the Great Plains. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to measure because when an animal gets sick, they often will go find a place that's in solitude and that might be where they die. And birds are famous for that, whether it be a parakeet or a wild bird. They they don't want to let any other species in the forest know that they're not feeling good. A lot of people just might not realize 
the depth of the secondary poisoning that, that happens. And the one out of Berkeley, California, raptors are the, yeah. It spells a rat. So they really do, they really do a good job mm -hmm. in, in trying to educate the public. Then you think of the marketing ploy for these decon and those type of programs, because most people, they don't want to touch a yucky mouse or rat that might be in their house. So mm -hmm. you just put the trap out and the rat or mouse goes somewhere else to drink water and die. That way people don't have to get their hands dirty. Oh, I understand that. I had to go through that evolution myself yeah. Yeah, before I realized that yeah. there's better ways. Yeah, do the old-fashioned snap trap. It's quick, it's efficient. And then what you can do is throw the carcass out in the yard and somebody's going to get it. It won't go to waste. That's a, another thought I hadn't <laughs> considered. And as we were talking, speaking of a carcass and somebody's going to get it, there was a turkey vulture that you pointed out flying overhead. And I, I think you have some turkey vultures here. Uh, well, we do. We have, a, we have an educational turkey vulture and we have a display turkey vulture. Okay. And I can introduce you pretty close up to our educational guy. His name is Sundance. And he's been in captivity since 2003. And there aren't too many folks around that are really turkey vulture fans, which is too bad. If you understand what they do for the environment, a lot of people, they might not be fans, but if they're educated about what they do and why they do it, at least they can understand. So the bird that got me hooked, gosh, about 50 years ago, yeah, I'm old. We're the great horned owls. Uh -huh. And I remember as a young girl looking out my window and I saw the silhouette on the garage and I looked away and I looked back and it was gone. Mm. So that's what kind of fueled my interest in raptors. It just silently departed. It just, away. it was just gone. It was yeah. just absolutely gone. These guys are truly nocturnal. If you see one during the day, there's probably a problem. And if they can catch it, they're going to eat it. So favorite food are skunks. And mm. none of these uh, raptors, except for the turkey vulture, has a sense of smell. The skunk sashays by, you know, is very confident and bold. And the great horned owl pounces on the back of him. He didn't see the owl coming. He didn't hear the owl coming. And they're able to dispatch their prey very efficiently. Yeah, I did not know that. As many times as I've seen a great horned owl, I didn't realize they were a skunk oh, specialist. They, love, they absolutely love skunks. Rabbits, rats, snakes, ducks. They've also been known to eat a lot of crows and crow babes. So that's one of the reasons that if you see crows really having a fit during the day and really mobbing something in a tree, it's probably going to be a, an owl. Yeah, and then the other birds join in when they hear Oh, the yeah, and the Blue Jays, and yeah, yeah, and depending on who's around. And that's actually a great tip for wildlife observers to pay attention when they hear the jays or the crows uh -huh. mobbing and try to find out where it is, and you might find an owl. And you might find an irritated owl that yeah. was just trying to, uh, take, a to take a snooze. <laughs> but, but yeah, owls, everybody really, if you like raptors, they're an awful lot of owl fans. They look cute and cuddly and soft, and they are soft. And but, the big eyes. And the big eyes. So they have big eyes like we do, and they're front of the head like ours. So, gosh, they must be smart. Mm. And they're really not. That's such a big wife's tale. Their brains are, gosh, probably the size of a shelled walnut. It's their eyes and their skulls that are that take up much, most of the space. Yeah, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Because I've seen, I don't know if this is true for all owls or just some, how their ears are offset a little bit and there's like a bigger like bony dish that helps to oh yeah it's amazing so yes their ears are a little offset so they can hear almost in 3d if you see the owl like in nature shows twirling its head around and doing gyrations with their head what they're trying to do is pinpoint exactly where that sound is coming from so the sound will come up it will hit that facial disc the very unique feathers on their face and then that is funneled to the ears and if you ever see an owl's ears, they're almost kind of alarming because they look like just big pink commas that are covered by feathers. They're really amazing in their depth of hearing and their eyesight. Once again, the only thing that they don't have is a good sense of smell. 
And when you look at a great horned owl or a long-eared owl or even a short-eared owl, those little tufts on their head, that's, those are not ears. Those are, yeah, those are not ears. And there is a science word for that. I'm sure you might know a plumicorn. And it's pluma, which is feather, and corn, I always think like maybe unicorn. And so those sets of feathers called plumicorns are, there's muscles that are attached to those so they can go up or down depending on what the owl wants to signal. Actually, that's just part of an owl's camouflage. So if you see a silhouette like out in the forest here and that owl's going to be really still, he's not going to move around much, those eyes are closed, those tufts are up, and that might look like Oh, maybe some leaves in that tree or a branch or something like that. Mm. So that's all it's for. Right. I can't see Cinnamon's head very well. If I crouch down, it's just in the wrong position. But the uh-huh. illustration here, it, that's a really good point because you can tell on the sign that could look like a leaf, a dappled, a leaf in dappled uh-huh. sunlight or something like uh-huh. that. And these two owls too are a, a little different color. Owls are like people. In fact, raptors are like people. Some might be a little darker, some might be a little lighter. So there is a variation. So as much as I love owls, I've been eyeing the ferruginous hawk (gasps) over here, which is probably my favorite hawk. So I'd love to hear its story. She is just magnificent. And of course her Latin name, Budio regalis, should speak volumes about her. So this is the biggest hawk in North America. And ferruginous, you know what ferruge is? It's like, like iron. iron. Or, yeah. There you go. So she is rusty colored, kind of like iron. And a couple things you notice between ferruginous hawks and then your red tails, which are much more common. So first of all, she has her pants on. Yep. So she has feathers down her legs. Why do some raptors have feathers on their legs? Owls have them to maybe cut down on the noise. So that makes them more silent. On these guys, it's protection from the food that they eat because a lot of times food will fight back. Their favorite food items are prairie dogs, and prairie dogs can get up to five pounds, and they can pack a pretty good bite. The other thing that you would notice is she has a huge mouth, which is called a gape. That helps her eat bigger chunks of these big prairie dogs. She is probably pound per pound the strongest raptor that we have here at the forest. I have to physically have my hands on all of these birds at least once a quarter for wellness visits and vaccinations and things like that. And she has the strongest legs of any of the birds here. And I see that Mesa's right wing is largely missing. Correct. And fortunately, that wing will never grow back. She came through a rehabilitation group here in Nebraska and we're very fortunate to have her because once again this is more of a west coast type bird we do see them out in western nebraska yeah i see this one came from mccook <laughs> yeah i'm lucky that we do get some of these in our area in california as well and i'm guessing that they they must eat the uh, california ground squirrels uh-huh. uh, they, uh-huh. they like those open habitats and, they uh, yeah they really do those ground squirrels are big as ground squirrels go yeah to see these guys in air you, you'll look up and you'll go i know it's a hawk just by the silhouette, but you can really tell by the underneath pattern on them. And then just, once again, their virtual size. They are just big birds. Beautiful tail, but lots of really good adaptations to make these guys successful. When she looks at me like this, it almost looks like she has spectacles on too. Those eyes Uh are uh, so big. (laughs) And of course, then all the diurnal birds have their, have the heavy brow ridges to help with sun. But I think that's another reason that I've always loved raptors is everything is there for a reason. They don't have an appendix like we do. They don't have (laughs) wisdom teeth. They don't have anything that that they really don't need to survive. Streamlined. (laughs) They're very streamlined. But streamlined, then you talk about the falcons. These guys are more like the maybe the pickup trucks. Of the raptor world. Not as aerodynamically. Not as aerodynamic, but boy, are they strong. Before I forget, you were talking about how those barred owls are at 1.2 pounds. Yeah, she's pretty close to four pounds. Oh, four pounds, much higher than I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she's a female, so of course all the females are generally about 30% bigger than the males are. So yeah, so she's a big girl. 
She's a super good ambassador. All of our display birds have to be used to people walking by. They have to be used to visitors. So she uh, she does pretty good. We should talk about uh, the deer falcon. Oh, yes. I have never seen a deer falcon in the wild or in captivity. So this is the first for me. Yes, and she is so new to us that we don't even have a sign made for her yet. But her name is Freya, and Freya is a deer falcon that was hatched in captivity. So this is the largest falcon in North America, and these guys are found like in Finland, Iceland, Greenland, Russia, but also into Canada and into the United States. She is probably around four pounds, so she's another very big girl. And they're just full of stamina. They're not as quick and dynamic as a peregrine falcon is, but they can outfly a peregrine in length any day. She's got, these and the horned owls have about the best view here. <laughs> yeah. Do, what, <laughs> what type of food does a jerf uh, oh, falcon, falcon eat? Mostly your falcons really focus on other birds. She can eat many kinds of ducks, many kinds of seabirds, shorebirds, ptarmigans, almost any bird that she can catch. She's going to do it. And just an open country bird. These guys in the wild are hard to track because they're nomadic. And a lot of the population does not live up there, and there's not a whole lot of tourists and bird watchers that go up around those parts to look for deer falcons. So they have that mystique about them. It's probably uh, less known in terms of population <clears throat> size and stability. And Absolutely. But the threats. good but the yeah, but the good thing is their threats are limited when they're up there away from people and industry. She has those huge falcon feet, those long skinny toes. Falcons all, always have that notcher in their beak, the tomial tooth, that kills their prey. Falcons are almost like the hyper little brother. They're always moving around. They go out and actively catch their food, where some hawks will just sit around and maybe wait for something to get hit on the road, and then they'll scavenge. So just totally different personalities between the falcons and the hawks. As Freya just did her business there in the enclosure. Makes me wonder how often do you have to go in and clean the enclosure? Holy cow. Husbandry is a huge area that we deal with every day. We get food prepared in the morning. We come out and feed. Of course, we've got eyes on these birds all the time. But the big thing is picking up food that they're not going to eat because it attracts yellow jackets. At this time of year, they're out looking for meat. She eats about 220 grams every day, and she eats quail. We buy quail for her and the other falcons, and we do have to prepare it for her. So she gets room service. <laughs> we go in and clean water pans. We pick up the food. We rake the sandy surfaces for waste. On one hand, it's of course, it's terrible that they're not out in the wild, but they are pampered. And they do teach the public a lot about their species and why they're so important. Are there ways to enrich <clears throat> their lives in the enclosure? I think about how at Henry Dorley Zoo, they'll put toys in for some animals or they'll change things up a little bit here and there. And we do. We will change perches up. But as far as toys and balls that make noise and things like that. Raptors are pretty serious and solitary birds and they don't play around. They don't play around. The only ones that really enjoy a puzzle or a phone book are the turkey vultures. Oh, interesting. <clears throat> so they're a little more curious and interactive. She sees visually, she sees a lot of different things. Of course, people she hears different insects in the forest. She sees different things in the forest. They do get stimulation, but it's just different than the than right. zoo animals. So we should go and talk about a peregrine. I do want to go back and find the, uh, the turkey vulture, too, in that oh, time, yes. right? Oh, yes. Absolutely. There's different subspecies, of course, of all these birds. But she is a different subspecies called appeals. Okay. And Peel's peregrines are usually found in central California on the coast on up to Alaska. Of the three different subspecies, Peel's are the biggest. And the really neat thing about these guys is they don't migrate. They don't have to because there's so many birds off the coast, 
off the water. It's just a smorgasbord year-round, so they don't migrate like the other subspecies. So the really cool thing about her, I love this, is she can travel up to 50 miles offshore, open ocean. She might catch a bird out 50 miles off the shore, so she has a decision to make. Either she dispatches and eats that bird on the wing when she's flying, Mm -hmm. or she has to hightail it back to land 50 (laughs) miles away before she settles on the ground to eat that bird. But just the tremendous endurance and speed and just, that's just the neatest thing ever. So if I tried as an amateur to connect the dots of what you just talked about, they're non-migratory and they're bigger and they can go 50 miles and take a bird 50 miles. That all seems linked. Like maybe they're bigger to, and that gives them the endurance to allow them to do what you you just described. You bet. Yeah. Here in Omaha, there's a peregrine, oh, the peregrine program Falcons. Uh-huh. on Woodman Tower. At Woodman Tower. There's one also at, there's been a nesting pair at Mutual of Omaha. There's okay. a pair up north of here at one of the power stations. Are those all so helped or managed by people or some of those are um, wild now? Some of them are semi-wild, especially when COVID came around. There's a rehabilitation group along with Nebraska Game and Parks that like to band all those guys. When COVID came around, they quit doing that due to closeness of people, but they do try as much as they can to ban these guys for for research purposes. See how far they go. They try to put up a family tree, which is interesting, and, and it's just amazing on, on how many folks will follow these cams. Yes. These, My mom the, is one of those. The falcon yeah. <laughs> cams, there's owl cams, there's eagle cams. It's very fascinating. And I also noticed when COVID hit, where a lot of people were working from home, I would get more phone calls saying, yeah, there's a hawk in my yard. And I'm like, that's good. And people didn't, people working in an office all day or on public transportation, maybe they didn't get to see some of these things that are out there every day. Oh, So I think that opened up a lot of eyes, too. I hope so. I know even for me, already somewhat connected to nature, when COVID hit, I started going out every day looking at birds to start. But before long, I was looking at all the spiders and the surfed flies and Uh everything else. And like you have a wild kingdom going on right underneath our noses all the time, just in miniature scale, too. (laughs) And absolutely. And there's a turkey vulture that is sunning. So this is our uh, display guy. This is Helios. I remember Helios from last time. I remember the name. Yeah, Yeah. and Helios is Greek for sun. He's got a bad wing where he cannot go back to nature. But these guys are really fascinating. There's a lot of ornithologists in the world that they say they're not even a raptor. To be a raptor, of course, the fine senses, but especially the, the feet and the talons. And raptor in Latin means to seize or to grab or to plunder, which I love that's a pirate word. But these guys, when you look at them, they don't have big, strong feet. Their feet look like chickens. Of course, yeah, they look, to me, like to an amateur, they still look big. So it's always surprising to learn how weak those feet how really are. How weak those feet are. Yeah. So they don't have the strong raptor feet. The boy is that beak sharp. And these are the ones, though, that have that wonderful sense of smell so they can smell that carcass from miles away. They're just fantastic to have around. But a lot of ornithologists say that they're more closely related to storks and should be in the stork family. And then there's some people that say, nah, they're a raptor. We count them as raptors here in the refuge. They're just really, they're cool birds. They're fascinating with the white legs and the white feet. Of course, they should be pink or red. They poop on themselves to keep themselves cool. Anything that they eat that has E. coli or any kind of really nasty virus or bacteria They eat it, stomach disposes of it, and they poop out just perfectly clean. There's no traces of of anything in their droppings. So when we walked up, it was, its wings were outstretched and it was sunning itself. And that's a Uh common behavior Uh in turkey vultures. Tell me more about what they're doing. And what they're doing, you know, of course the sun feels good. We all love the sun, but actually that sun can help keep them clean. It can kill some of the bacteria that they might get into when their head and some of their body is inside a carcass. That's why they don't have feathers on their heads. It's easier to keep your head clean. Once again, if you're neck up in a carcass, 
but very curious. These guys are curious. I'll come in with, with tennis shoes, with laces, and if it's not laced, they want to know what your shoe is doing and why that lace is not laced. So these are the ones that will freeze like a rat or a mouse in an ice cube in the summer and put it out, and it just drives them crazy because they can't uh. get to it right away. We will put phone books, and nobody uses phone books anymore. Everybody re hopefully recycles them. We take phone books because we will put a dead mouse in some of the pages. So it's almost like he's looking through the phone book he's, he, because he can smell that mouse. So I have no idea what he's picking up. There is drama all around us. And meanwhile, we have an osprey over here trying to get our attention. Yes, <laughs> and so we also have a fishhawk or an osprey. We do find osprey in Nebraska. And in fact, they even nest in Nebraska now which is oh, which is a pretty neat thing, yeah. yeah. Ozzy is just a very vocal guy. He had some salmon today. They're so clumsy on the ground. Their talons, of course, are like fish hooks. They're just highly curved. And then they have spicules on the bottom of their feet that help them hold on to those slippery fish. But they're beautiful in the air. They are just so dynamic in the yeah. air. And you can always tell these guys there's eye stripe, and then their wings, when they're flying, they almost have a crook in them. So right. their wings are very different. So these guys are really pretty easy to identify uh, when they're flying. My first osprey experience was at Worspan Lake here in, in Sarpy County, Nebraska. And I was looking for whatever bird I could find. And I saw this raptor coming in. I, I trained my camera on it. And of course, just then it decided to go down and get a fish. So oh, it was like yeah. perfect conditions. It went down and grabbed some small fish out of the lake flew off with it in its talons. Oh, you know. and it is. It's an amazing first experience to have with an osprey. Yeah. So yes, he's very vocal. A lot of these birds in here, their populations are good. There are some that are a little less prevalent and are a species of special concern here in Nebraska. And the burrowing owl is one, short-eared owls. So we do have some birds that their numbers just aren't quite as good. Let's go in and I'll show you the turkey vulture. Okay. Well, Come on in. So this is behind the scenes. I have an employee that lives upstairs. He's a raptor care specialist. So he makes sure that all these guys are alive and fed and watered and helps me with veterinarian things. We have big whiteboards on things that are going on. Here's our permits that we always have just in case anybody would ever want to see them. We have our program schedules for the week. So I've got three of my big birds are out today, a great horned owl, a red tail, and another peregrine falcon. Yeah, we're just, we're really, we're busy almost all the time, but of course summer is when it really gets crazy. So the birds in the enclosures that we just saw, those are here permanently, and then there's a separate set of birds that you will take to... And they are also here permanently. Okay. So when you look at this list, these are all the display birds that we have, all the education birds that we have. And we feed everybody in grams. I think some people might think that we just go out and throw a deer leg to the bald eagles or whatever, but it's a little more scientific <laughs> than that. We have a range and a food type. And... Okay. Of course, this is funny because turkey vultures will eat anything. And then there are some individual birds, uh, like a red tail, and they will eat birds, quail, and other birds out in the wild. He, he just will not eat a quail. Oh. So that's why there's no quail on So them. that's unique to Rusty. So I that's guess. just unique. Yeah. That's very unique just to Rusty. So that's really funny. But, yeah. You know what, Diane? In fact, if you would love to talk about... This dynamic little falcon, this real. Is Michael and Diane Gwynn. Nice, nice to, meet to meet you. This is Tyga, a merlin, a type of a falcon. And Tyga was injured, had a broken wing and broken leg. So obviously could not be released back into nature. A lot of times with wing injuries, they can have uh, situations, and if I turn around, you can see how. Yeah, the wing is out. not. Mm -hmm. yeah. So these are consumers of other birds and very quick, but of course not as quick as like the peregrine falcon. And their hunting methods are a little different. So when merlin is hunting, they're gonna chase a bird upward, whereas a peregrine will go into a stoop or a dive, and that's where they get up to over 200 miles per hour. Tyga has been with us, I think, in 2013, I believe. 
that Piper was, was already an adult when she was injured, we don't know how old she is. Mm. So once they have their adult feathers, we don't know. Red-tailed hawk, we know. Eh, takes about three years for them to get that rusty red tail and their eye color changes a little bit. Bald eagles, about three to five years to get the white tail and the white head. And I've never seen a merlin so close. I've seen them in the wild. Yes. Yeah. And even in the wild, they're hard to see. They yeah, are, they're small. And just nondescript. I mean, they don't have that huge malar stripe. And their right. color is just not as dynamic as a kestrel. And a lot of times these guys used to be referred to as pigeon hunts. I'm just going to get a weight. We weigh every two weeks. We weigh the birds. So see, we weigh the education birds. We weigh the display birds because everything is based on what their weight range should be. And so if you see a trend going in the wrong direction. If we see a trend going in the wrong direction, absolutely. And we use a, a computer program called RaptorMed. And so we enter all their weights, whatever they, and I'm just going to show you. We weigh their food, of course, and look, and everything's in little, yeah. little bento boxes. So we weigh this, and then tomorrow, if Arrow doesn't eat all of this, then we weigh that also. And all that goes into this computer program. We vaccinated for West Nile virus not too long ago. We have one more vaccine to go. We save feathers. And especially the eagle feathers, of course, because those have to go to the feather depository in Colorado. One thing I really want to point out is the price of food. Now, everything has gone up. Price of houses, price of cars, and everything. But really, even the price of a mouse over the last couple years has gone from about 69 cents now up to $1.39 for an extra large mouse. And if you do the math on all my guys that are mouse eaters, all my guys that are rat eaters, quail eaters, this year I budgeted for about twenty, maybe $22,000 on food. I'm going to spend probably around $35,000. Wow. Right? Once again, the price of everything has gone up. And I buy it from one of the biggest suppliers in the nation. And she's chatty. Don't mess with my falcon feet. So these are some of the educational areas. A few of these birds are out, but in here we would have Jamaica, a red-tailed hawk. We would have uh, another subspecies of a peregrine falcon arrow, and she's an anatom subspecies, so she's a little bit smaller. And here we have this cute little guy. And in fact, we can go in if you want to get just a little bit closer to him. So this is George, an eastern screech owl. And he's being very vocal right now, too. Yeah, they don't like me. He's <laughs> like, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just being bothered. So he is going through a molt right now. So that's why he's not as handsome as he could be right now. You can so that's see tough to feather, his, his one plumicorn is a little tatty looking. But he's, he's just a great ambassador for his species. Now his right eye is darker than the left eye. Is that an injury or? So that's an injury. He went to rehab when he was uh, still an owlet. Something poked him in that eye, where it does not it does not dilate anymore. We don't know exactly how much vision he has, but that binocular vision, of course, is essential to any raptor. Even though he can fly, he would starve to death. Like our other birds, he does a lot of educational programs. He's cute. He is really, yeah, he is really cute. It makes you realize how small screech owls really are. And the elf owls are the smallest ones, of course, and sawwets are a little bit smaller too. But So yeah, raptors come in, what I like to say, t-shirt sizes, small to extra large. And he's one of our smaller guys. He eats about 20 to 25 grams of food per day, which is about a small mouse. There's your guy right there. Oh, yeah. Curious. Very curious. Yeah, so this is Sundance. And lots of times when I'm in here doing husbandry chores, I will prop his door open and he will walk up and down. If I miss any little bitty thing on the floor or in the drain, something that you and I would be revolted about, he will pick it up and eat it. Um, so he's no doing problem. a service for you. So he is, you know, he even does a service for us in here. And once again, these birds just have wonderful views. And I didn't mention this is a turkey vulture for people listening. Uh -huh. <laughs> we just started talking about it. but Sundance, just a handsome fella. And um, yeah, he's, he's quite sociable.
So I think Diane is going to try to go in and get another bird to weigh. We'll wait out here while Diane does that. But yeah, so lots of cleaning, lots of water pan changing. If you've ever had a parrot, or a cockatiel or any kind of bird. They're quite messy, and especially around molting time, so there's always a lot of little fluffy feathers. Yeah, and I see all the cleaning <laughs> devices all around mm -hmm. here. And then next to the bird enclosures out here, we have all their equipment. All raptors have to have some kind of leather straps called jesses around their ankles, and by law, that bird has to be attached to us. And it's mainly for not the person's safety, but the bird's safety. Because if a bird would get away from one of my handlers, it would probably pick the furthest corner and go and hide. But so that's mandated. Everybody has uh, their own equipment. They have their own water brushes. You have to keep things spotless. And these brushes are dedicated to different birds? Are dedicated birds, so you to different birds, yeah. yes. So you don't want to cross-contaminate. We use Simple Green. We Clorox prep areas, water bowls. Once again, cleanliness is, is a big issue when it comes to raptors. So I think I saw the sign. That's a, I didn't see the bird, but that's a Swainson's hawk in there. Yes, and she's going to bring her out. Yeah, and so this is, I think this bird's 19 years old. Of course, raptors have long lifespans. If they make it through that first year, and that's their, that's the very, very tough year. Back to the rodenticide conversation, that's another tragedy of rodenticides. We say long lifespans, but also smaller broods, less frequent success. Mm -hmm. So it takes a long time to, to get that back. Absolutely. Say a Swainson's hawk... Uh, has four chicks, generally only one out of four is going to survive. Either poisoning, shootings, illegal trappings, all kinds of really bad things. And they only have one brood per year. So if something happens, uh, if somebody goes and cuts that tree down, there's a nest in it, somebody illegally shoots one of the parents, all kinds of really bad things happen. These guys are on top of the food chain. Of course, we want them around. This is a dark morph Swainson's hawk and her name is Grasshopper. And Grasshopper... Appropriately named Grasshopper. Grasshopper, yes, after a Grasshopper hawk. And she's what they call a dark morph. Some are the typical brownish type colors. Only about 17% of the world's Swainson's hawk population are dark morphs. So she's missing most of her wing. She was involved in a collision. And one really neat adaptation. There she is. She's on her scale. What does she weigh, Diane? 775. 775. And that's grams. It's a weight scale with a special block with the AstroTurf on the top of it. And they are trained to step on that and stay on that for the few seconds in order to weigh them. But when you look at Swainson's hawk feet, look how small they are such a big bird. You don't need a big multi-purpose foot to go out and eat grasshoppers. But their feet are very fast and they're very small. So what is their hunting style? Are they searching in vegetation for grasshoppers uh, or are they seeing one from afar? These guys will course over a field or a prairie and look down. If they see one, they'll go down, grab it with one foot, keep flying, eat it on the wing, and then they're off looking for more. These guys are also really speedy on the ground, and I don't think a lot of people realize, yeah. but I'll tell you what, Swainson's hawks can run. In western Nebraska, it can be migrating, and they will be seen behind the farmer as he's harvesting with his combine, and of course he's stirring up a lot of insects. So the crickets and grasshoppers. So mainly they're eating the insects when they migrate, and then during breeding time they change their diet. Yeah. Mine and rabbits, rodents. Yep, yeah, she's an old girl. Yeah, I, I've never seen the dark morph before. I've uh -huh. only seen yeah. the like, standard, typical, uh -huh. yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're pretty lucky to have her. Yeah. And every now and then you'll see a really dark or a light morph red tail in mm. town. She's quite the diva. She's been doing <laughs> programs for for many years. Many nice, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Miss Grasshopper. Miss Diva. Oh. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. 
Yeah, and everybody is molting. So everybody is growing their tail. Yeah. Out in the wild now, their babes are done. They're out of the nest. And so now it's it's time for the parents or the adults to grow some new feathers and rest and relax. Mm-hmm. And if they migrate, they want to grow those new feathers and rest and relax and get fat before they go on their journey. Yeah, beautiful bird. She really is. She really is. I could say that about all of them, even the turkey vultures. They are just special. So we'll head back out and we'll talk about the eagles that we have. And as we come out, the barred owls, they just don't miss anything. Yeah, they're both looking at us. Uh-huh. Like, uh, what are you doing and why are you here? And Clacking there. And everything else. So we'll come and look at our two male bald eagles that are on display. We have Fisher and we have Freedom. Bald eagles have made just a tremendous comeback throughout North America. I remember as a kid in the late 60s and in the 70s, you just you did not see these guys. If you saw an eagle, it was just a really rare occurrence. Nowadays in Nebraska, people will look up and the kids will go, oh, there's an eagle. They don't realize that we almost lost this species yeah. due to DDT. So they've made a wonderful comeback. In fact, our Nebraska Game and Parks division does not even count active nests anymore in Nebraska. There are that many. But, you know, it used to be DDT and now it's lead poisoning. Okay. So that is the, the modern threat that they face. Just like the condors and... Just like the condors. Are vultures susceptible? You bet. Really, any raptor is, especially anything that will eat a carcass. There are some states that that I think are a little more successful at pushing non-toxic ammunition. Some states, it might take a few more years or maybe another decade. But there's nothing worse than seeing one of these guys suffer with lead poisoning. It only takes one piece of lead about the size of a grain of rice to kill a full-grown bald eagle. So it does not take much. Yeah, I I had the misconception that it took more than that or repeated exposure. No, no, no. And yeah, it it does not take much. These guys, if they're found, they can go through a rehabilitation uh, process and sometimes get nursed back to good enough health to release them. But exposure to lead, just like in children, it causes neurological vision damage, liver damage, just all all kinds of bad things. So unfortunately, lead is now the new DDT. And these ones here, I was just reading their profiles, one of them had lead poisoning when it came in. Most of them are going to have some kind of amount of lead in their system. They might have mercury also from fish. And once again, that all the poison that we put out in the environment, it just gets deposited in fatty tissue and it just keeps traveling along, along the food chain. Mm-hmm. So it never goes away. Once again, education is our best defense against some of these issues. I'm impressed with this enclosure and both the size and the fact that there's a water feature uh-huh. for them. Why, why do you have a water feature? First of all, the eagles and the osprey that is housed uh, pretty close to the water feature, they love that sound of water. Of course, eagles are most commonly found around water, lakes, rivers, things like that. So uh, it's just it's a little calming, and they do go in there and take a quick bath every now and then. We also give them a little kiddie pool to go in, which is not as nice looking as a waterfall, but they even love their kiddie pools. And this eagle enclosure, once again, is much bigger than it really needs to be by law. They like to loaf. And what loafing is laying down, they will lay down on their breast. Another bird would lay down like a chicken when they're laying an egg. So we have loafing perches in there. Now that reminds me, I, I saw a ferruginous hawk one time in a field laying down. Uh-huh. So I guess they do it too. They do it. Yeah. They do it too. Yeah, so that's called loafing. So if you see a bird laying down, yeah, boy, lazy bones. So they're really acclimated to all climates, especially the eagles and some of the owls. The hotter or the colder, the better. They're, they like the cold better than the heat. In almost all these enclosures, we have a mister system. So if it gets above a specific temperature, then we turn the misters on and it lowers the, the ambient temperature. And we spray these guys, too, yeah. with water hoses. And uh, they quite like that. Like, how do they thermoregulate? Well, they pant. 
They don't sweat like we do. A lot of it is through panting. And also if you wet down their legs, their, their capillaries and their veins are very close to the surface on their legs and their feet. So a lot of times if you keep their feet cool and wet and uh, provide some shade and plenty of water, they're gonna be just fine. So they, the spraying helps, not only do they enjoy it, but then the temperature of the water is cooler than the air. Uh-huh, absolutely. cools down their legs. And, absolutely. Okay. So everybody out here, except for the owls, they're kind of like cats. They don't like to get wet that much, but in some of our Nebraska temperatures, unfortunately, they have to get hosed down just a little bit too. Do you have any success stories related to you know, this refuge? We have many success stories, it seems like, every day out here. So to see the kids with their families, they're able to see these birds up close and they're able to read about their stories. They're able to share that bit of information maybe to other family members or their friends. You know, our job once again is just to continually educate the public, not only about Fontenelle Forest as a whole, but some of the subsets, like the raptors, like the insects, some of the trees and invasive species. But I've been doing education now programs for a long time, and kids would come up to me maybe five years later, and of course they would remember me, because I'm the bird woman, and come up and say, gosh, I remember seeing you at such and such program, and how such and such bird, and they'll remember the name and the species of the bird, and... So when you make that connection, it's really special. And it doesn't even have to be a young person. Sometimes it's a 30-year-old, somebody who's super busy, has kids, has a career, doesn't pay too much attention to nature. They see either a static display bird here or they go to a raptor program where they'll see a red tail up close. And then I might run into them maybe a year later, and now they're seeing them all over, where before they had blinders on. So when you open up the world to, and there's the barn. Oh, there's a barn owl walking And now by. there's a barn owl. Thank you, Diane. And Diane is one of our long time handlers. And now she's walking up with Baron, the barn owl, who I tell you what, pictures of barn owls and until you see them in person, yeah. their coloring and their markings, they are just beautiful birds. I'll get, I'll get a photo with the camera too. Oh, yes. Yeah, that facial disc on the barn owl is just so prominent. It is. And now, okay, there. And I just gave it a little squirt. <laughs> oh, a little mist? Yeah, a little mist, uh-huh. yes. Baron was uh, turning his head all the way around when I went to take the picture, looking the opposite direction, as owls can do. As owls yeah. can do, but they have that very flexible neck. They have 14 vertebrae, where we only have seven. So they can't turn it all the way 360. They do about a 270. But he's, yeah, he's doing it again. <laughs> it's always fascinating for groups of students to see, to watch that. And Baron is a youngster, only a little over a year old. So Baron is still learning proper etiquette. Yes, <laughs> he is a youngster. But you can see how long their legs are. Yeah, and I've, I've seen some of the, some of the images. Yeah, yeah that when you pull up the feathers or whatever, <laughs> very very long-legged species. They also have a special talon called a pectinate claw, and that's what they use to comb their feathers on their facial disc to make it just so. And it's that middle, that's that yeah. middle talon. Hi. So here come some people. So Diane, yeah, be sure and talk to this family yeah, this about Baron. Absolutely. So once again, that's, and that's what it's all about. Hi, beautiful girl. You are a big, beautiful girl. Those big, dark falcon eyes. She is staring you down. She is. I have no food for you. I have no food. So the birds that were hatched in captivity, they have a metal band on them. So Baron had a metal band, and the deer falcon also has one. And she came from a falconer. She came from a breeder and was not going to be used, so she was offered to me. If I gave her a good home and used her for education, this person was more than willing to share, which I was very thankful for. Yeah, what an amazing opportunity. It is. Yeah. It really is. So in terms of the general state of raptors in Nebraska or here in the forest, con you know, from a conservation point of view, 
how would you characterize current conditions? Because you've talked about stable turkey vultures and increasing bald eagles, but, and then threats that exist at the same time. Is there a way to summarize it? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a tough that's a tough thing. Generally, if you're a cavity nester, once again, like a kestrel or a barred owl, your numbers might not be as strong. If you're a ground nester, like the short-eared owls, they nest on the ground. Habitat destruction is a big thing for them. Mm -hmm. We get rid of a lot of the prairies where a lot of these birds rely on not only to nest but to hunt. Some will take the agricultural lands and they will use that, but there are some species that are just really prairie specialists. And okay. unfortunately, their their numbers also are going down. Yeah, I mean, the prairies among the most, I guess, developed or destructed <laughs> habitats. Yeah, right up there with wetlands. The, that they are. and But I think there, there might be, a, it seems like there's more protection for wetlands than there is for prairies anymore, but... But yeah, it's all about raptors in, in their habitat. A lot of people will ask, is there anything that I can do to really help them? And I always just say, provide a good habitat. Raptors are a great indicator species. If you have raptors around on your farm or your ranch or in a park, that's a good sign that things are going well. When you don't see raptors and you see the other pest populations going up, then you've got something a little off balance. Just the fact that you were still seeing them, you know, in this day and age, is just a great reminder of the majesty of nature, that these guys are still around and the kids are able to see them and the older generations are able to share their knowledge about raptors to that generation. Do you have any programs or events or anything of interest that you want to promote or talk about? Maybe you have uh, annual we, events? Or? We always have events here at Fontenelle Forest. I always tell people, just look at our website. There's always things going on. We like to say that we educate from 3 to 93. So we have programs for preschoolers, nature programs, and we also do some senior citizen programs. We do those free for members. We're going to have nine of those next year. It's once again just sharing the appreciation of nature. It's just there. There's just nothing better. And do you have recommendations for people that are just like raptor enthusiasts and they want to learn more about raptors? It could be books or documentaries oh, or other organizations. Oh, raptor nerds! I would tell. <laughs> I'm such a raptor nerd. I would tell anybody in any state to Google what offerings, raptor offerings, there might be in their state. Rehabilitation people always need help and they always need money because to save one of these guys and to feed them properly and get the proper vet care uh, for release takes a lot of money. There might be some volunteer opportunities too in states with local programs. But just make yourself familiar with the resources that are out there in your community and try to try to get involved. Just try to get involved. And there's a lot of really good information out there. We use Cornell, All About Birds, for most of our information because we think they're the best and probably the smartest raptor folks out there. We get all of our information from Cornell. We don't just Google something on like Wikipedia and go, oh, that looks like a fun fact. So just watch where you get your information um, especially on Facebook. Just get familiar with who's in your area, the experts in your area, and get involved. All these years ago, I saw my first raptor. Then in college, I got involved in banding raptors a little bit. And then now I work with these guys. And there aren't too many folks that have the type of job that I do. And when you work for nonprofits, you don't make a whole lot of money, but it doesn't matter. You work around these guys. It's what an awesome thing. And I think you brought up a good point, too, with the rehabilitators, oftentimes they often, not only do they need money, they need help. I spent many years in, in the rehab world with raptors and it's, yeah, it's, uh, boy, do they work long, hard hours. Birds come in injured when it's not convenient. They come in Christmas, they come Mother's Day. I saw one here, um, I forget which one. was Christmas Eve, and that yeah. was a Ferruginous hawk. Oh, bet. okay. So there are these wonderful rehab people throughout the country that answer those calls and go get those injured birds. And once again, it's expensive. Food is expensive. So yes, I would always tell people, find out who's around you and go get involved. 
Thank you so much for all your time today. And I appreciate the work that you do and that the forest does. And just thank you. Oh, good. Good. Thank you for having me. And I, I hope you enjoyed it. And of course I enjoyed it. And I hope you did too. And thank you again to Denise and all of the staff at Fontenelle Forest who were so accommodating to me as I did these two different episodes, two different interviews. If you missed the other Fontenelle Forest episode, it was an interview with Michelle Foss, and it was about land stewardship. We talked about all the different habitats at the forest and many interesting things about how the land is managed. That episode was released on August 29th, so go check it out. What fun these two episodes were. So thank you again to Fontenelle Forest and to you, my listeners. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support, so check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.